Well, good evening. I hope you're having a good day. Here we go, so let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we turn to your scriptures now, we pray, please, Lord, let us hear you speak, so that by coming to your Son, we might have life and light in his name. Amen. Well, friends, we spent the last two nights looking at how the Christian scriptures are the means by which God speaks to us today, but really... We've been thinking about the Scriptures rather than the message God speaks through the Scriptures for the last two nights. So, what is the message of the Scriptures? Well, the answer is, it's the Gospel. The Gospel is the message that comes through this book, the Scriptures. What is the Gospel? Gospel just means God's great public Good news announcement. That's what gospel means, a great public good news announcement. What then is God's great public good news announcement that comes through the Scriptures? Well, we've been talking about that in different ways all week. God's gospel is that Jesus is Christ and Lord. But if the Scriptures, you can write that in the little um, speech bubble there in your notes, see, Jesus is Christ and Lord. Uh, We've been talking about this in different ways all week, uh, but if the Scriptures just said, Jesus is Christ and Lord, I guess you could write it on a single page. We wouldn't have to have all of these pages. It takes a lot of pages, apparently, to say Jesus is Christ and Lord. The Scriptures are saying Jesus Christ is Lord, but what else are they saying? Well, four things there that you might like to jot down, four things that I think the Scriptures do to fill out this understanding of the Gospel. The Scriptures, first of all, focus us on Jesus as Christ and Lord. They focus us on Jesus as Christ and Lord. Secondly, they lay the foundations for the Gospel in the prophets and apostles. They lay the foundation for the Gospel in the prophets and the apostles. Thirdly, They describe the promised blessings of the gospel for those who believe. They describe the promised blessings of the gospel for those who believe. And finally, it fills out the implications of the gospel for living in this world. It fills out the implications of the gospel for living in this world. So, you got the four points. The scriptures give us a rich picture of God's gospel with all of its foundations, its promises, its blessings, and its implications. That's why the Bible is so big, because it's doing all that. It's filling out the gospel for you. How can we then summarize that gospel message? Well, we could just say, Jesus is Christ and Lord, but what are we trying to say when we say that, Jesus is Christ and Lord? I think I'd put it this way. I'd say, the gospel is God's great announcement about who Jesus is within the plans and purposes of God. That's what the gospel's trying to tell you, who Jesus is in the plans and purposes of God. That's what Jesus is Lord and Christ is meant to be telling you, who Jesus is in the plans and purposes of God. So this gospel message is expressed in the scriptures in different ways. So have a look now on in your book, page 35, Down the bottom, you can see the four passages in a table at the bottom of that page. As I read through each one, I want you to notice how Paul, in each passage, summarizes the gospel. Uh, First of all, the passage, the top left box, right? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. How does Paul describe the gospel here? He says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So much richness actually there in just a few sentences. The gospel there in verse 8 is... 
described in verse 9 as the Word of God. The blessing of the gospel there in verse 10, for those who believe, is that they obtain salvation that is in Jesus with the promise of eternal glory. But how did Paul summarize his gospel message there in verse 8? He said, Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descendant of David. Is that what you'd say if someone said, what do you Christians believe? Ah, we believe in Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descendant of David. Maybe that's not the gospel summary that you're used to. In fact, all three parts of that statement that Paul makes there, that little verse, are actually all about the same thing. See, the Christ was the title for the promised descendant from David, who would sit on his throne forever. And according to the Old Testament, that promised Christ could be identified or would be identified by God raising him from the dead. All three are related. So Paul is really saying, my gospel is that Jesus really is the Christ. He's the promised descendant of David. He's the one God raised from the dead. That's what he's saying. What about in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, the top right passage there? How does Paul describe his gospel here? Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a different set of words, but it's very much the same idea. Verse 3, the gospel is about Jesus, God's Son. Now, when the New Testament talks about the Son of God, don't straight away read that as, Oh, that's about God, the eternal Son, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, the second person of the Trinity. You have to remember way back on Tuesday night, I said, it's always important to remember the Jewish Old Testament background when you're reading the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, Son of God was a title for the King who came from King David. You can check it out later, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, 2 Samuel 7, 14, or maybe Psalm 2. And that seems to be what Paul has in mind. The gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, namely Jesus Christ. You see again all those same ideas coming through, same collection of truths, Christ, King, Son of God, descended from David, raised from the dead. This is who Jesus is in the plans and purposes of God. We'll move on to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5, bottom left of your page. How does Paul describe the gospel here? He says, Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand through which also you are being saved if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. And here it is. Here's his gospel reminder. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, then to the twelve. Notice again, he identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Christ promised in the Scriptures. That's the Old Testament Scriptures. In particular, he focuses on the fact that the Christ, as Christ, Jesus died for our sins, and that he rose again. Jesus' death is the Christ who takes our place under the just judgment of God against sin. That is central to Paul's gospel it's not just oh by the way a few interesting facts about jesus he died then he came alive again no it's because in the plans and purposes of god jesus died for our sins that all who come to him in faith might be saved and finally 2 corinthians 4 verses 3 to 6 
Paul writes this time. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the heart of Paul's gospel proclamation is there, unchanged, in verse 5. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. But this time, he draws out the connection between knowing Jesus and knowing the one true living God. In verse 4, the gospel is described as the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or in verse 6, through the gospel, we have knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the gospel announces how glorious Jesus is. And in telling us about Jesus, the gospel tells us what God himself is like and how glorious he is because Jesus is God become flesh. Now it's worth asking yourself, how do these expressions of the gospel that we've seen in the scriptures, how do they compare with how you talk about the Christian message? Is it different? Is it the same? Were there some things there that you would not normally talk about? Does that matter? Well, tomorrow in your review groups, you'll get to talk about that. So make sure you don't stay up too late tonight because you want to be functioning tomorrow morning. No, no, I'm just taking it all in. I've just got my eyes shut. Really, I'm listening. Yeah, right. Don't try that. We've all, yeah, we know that doesn't work. That's a little bit about the gospel focus of the scriptures. If you turn over the page, page 36, let's explore the gospel and its blessings as proclaimed here in the scriptures. We're going to do this by focusing in on Ephesians uh, 1 to 3, but before we get into that, I have a quick quiz for you. You can see there at the top of page 36, the model of God's speech we drew from scripture earlier in the week. In the gospel, God reveals himself in Christ as the one full of dot, 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 who speaks words of dot, 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 dot. Have a go now at filling it in yourself. And if you need help, compare notes with a friend next to you. Just going to give you 30 seconds. Okay, so. I hope you managed to work it out together. Here's the answers in case you need it. In the gospel, God revealed himself in Christ as the one who is full of authority, righteousness, and love, and who speaks words of life and power, grace and truth, warning and judgment, comfort and hope. Give yourself full marks for trying. Now, well, and by the way, I did receive a rap by this. Yeah, okay, now it looks like we're going to have to do that tomorrow. Okay. Well, I was just, just checking what, yeah, okay, we'll have to do it. We'll have, we'll have to do it tomorrow. Mental note. Um, now, what you notice, when Paul writes about the gospel and its blessings in, say, Ephesians, what you notice when Paul writes about the gospel is that it is full of the same sorts of words from God. And it reflects the same character of God as we saw and heard in Jesus and which God spoke through the Old Testament prophets. We're going to see the same character of God full of authority, righteousness and love and the same words. Words full of life and power, grace and truth, comfort and hope, warning and judgment. Now, what we were going to do at this point was have someone read out all of Ephesians 1 to 3. 
which is why it's there in your book. And we were going to look together for all the times Paul mentions anything about those key concepts as he writes about the gospel to the Ephesians. Let's see. Let me tell you a little story. Thursday night at annual conference has a bit of a bad reputation. Well, I'll be honest. It's the talk on Thursday night that sometimes has a bit of a poor reputation as sometimes Rowan can just go on a little bit on Thursday night. It, look, it, it, has its, it has its origins in the murky, dim, dark past, you know, maybe all the way back to, say, 2012, um, when I think I had a brain explosion and I decided that, I, yes, I could give a talk for two hours and that that would be great, good for all of us. I think it was some sort of twang in my brain that went off but the good news is I've repented of such brain explosions. I had another brain explosion the other night, actually, when I said to you that King David was the son of Saul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Finally, you can stop praying for my salvation now, that, you know, or whatever you've been worried about. Like, that I got, I, I just, I, when I, I wrote that down, I just, I just wasn't thinking. It was just it was like a mini brain explosion. As soon as someone said afterwards, and a couple of people said to me, like, you do know, right, that David, you know, not Saul. I went, oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I don't know why I... Anyway, little brain explosion. Anyway, I think I had a bit of a brain explosion when I said, oh, yes, just at this little point of the talk, we'll read all of Ephesians 1 to 3, and we'll... And then, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're just going to look at the passage we had read for us, Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, which we had read for us earlier. And how do we see then these same words of God and character of God coming out in just these few verses? I'll put uh, just a few uh, summary points up as I go along up on the screen. First of all, the awful reality. Notice how Paul starts there in chapter 2, verse 1. You, he said, were dead through trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Do you know what it is to trespass? Right? To trespass is to cross a boundary that you're not meant to cross. We trespass all the time when we cross boundaries that God has set in His Word. Because He's spoken, He's told us how we should best live as His creatures. God tells us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength to love our neighbor as ourselves. He tells us to worship Him alone and not the gods we make up for ourselves, like our family or our success or our security. But we don't do what He says. We just keep crossing that boundary. And as a result, Paul says there, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You might look like you are walking around full of life, but Paul says, apart from Jesus, because of your sins, you are the, a walking dead person. You are spiritually dead, not just a little bit ill, spiritually dead. There is no life, no real life in you. Or as Paul puts it there at the end of verse 3 in that chapter, as a result of following our own desires rather than following God, we were by nature children of wrath. There's God's word of warning and judgment. What do our sins, our decision to say, get lost God, I don't want you running my, my life, I'm doing things my own way, where does that attitude get us? Does it get us to more freedom? I've told God to take a hike, now I'm free. Does it actually give you greater joy to disregard what he says and just do whatever you feel like doing? Well, you might think it's going to give you more joy, but actually, ultimately, no. We've crossed God's boundary, God's boundary that he placed there for our good. And because He is full of righteousness, when we cross that boundary, we bring down on ourselves His just wrath against our sin. 
which is death. Death is God's just judgment on our sin. That was the case going right back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they ignored God's command for their good. He gave them a good command. Don't eat of that tree or you will die. And they crossed the boundary. The food looked good. They ate it. And death came. It's just as true today. When we live life refusing to let God be God by ignoring what he says, we reveal that we're actually children of wrath. We are spiritual dead people who will one day face God's just wrath for all our sin. That's God's word of warning and judgment. It's sobering, I know. But the reason that God has told us this is because he knows it doesn't have to be like this. He's done something wonderful, something beautiful to breathe miraculous life into our deadness and to give us a glorious future. So what has God done about the awful reality? What's God done about it? In fact, look again at how chapter 2 verse 1 started. You were dead. Past tense. Something for these Christians has changed. Look down at verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God is the one true living God who speaks words of life and power even to us, dead in our sins. God has made us alive with Christ. He's brought us from death, spiritual death, to life, real life in relationship with him. That Life and power, as Paul puts it a bit earlier, actually, in chapter 1, 19 and 20, the same power by which he raised Jesus from death to life is what he puts to work in you, to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's the same power at work. And you say, oh, no, 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 like, what happened to Jesus, like, out of the grave, death to life, that's powerful. Same power to bring you, dead person, to life, real spiritual life in Christ. Well, how do we become alive? How do we become alive? How does this happen? How are you raised from spiritual death to real life? Well, chapter 2 there, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By putting our faith, our trust in Jesus. That's how we move from deadness to life. Through faith. We'll go back to chapter 1 verse 13 where Paul recalls when the Ephesians heard the word of truth. There's the truth, right? Heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and had believed in him. How do you move from death to life? By hearing God's word of truth the word of his gospel, by believing in Jesus. When you hear that word and believe in Jesus, you move from death to life. Well, how, though, is the life possible? How is it right, actually, for God to give us life when we're dead in our sins? How is that okay, that you can just be moved? If you were dead because of your sins, that that's what you justly deserve, how come you can then be alive? answer is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How this is possible that you can go from death to life is all about Jesus. What he has done in his death and his resurrection, that's how come you and I can have life. It's all about Jesus. And if you, here's a great little exercise for you. Go through these three chapters all three chapters, and be amazed at how many times Paul writes in Christ Jesus or with Christ Jesus or through Christ Jesus, right? In, with, or through Christ.
Christ Jesus. You notice how many times he says that, let alone the time he says for Christ Jesus or other things, but just those three, in, with, and through Christ Jesus. Because the point he makes throughout these chapters is that our salvation is entirely tied up with what happened to Jesus. His death, his resurrection. Jesus' death is what makes it possible for God to forgive our sins while still being full of righteousness himself. So Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So yes, we were dead in our trespasses, but now you can be forgiven all of those trespasses through Jesus because he died in your place bearing the guilt and the penalty for all your sins. So yes, you can be forgiven. Your slate can genuinely be wiped clean of all your trespasses and sins. Why? Because they've all been put onto Jesus for you. He dies in your place. And then Jesus' resurrection to new life is the same new life that you can now have in Jesus. Just as he, having borne our sin and suffered God's wrath for us, was raised by God to new life, a life in ongoing relationship with him, we too get to share in new spiritual life. We're raised to life with him, which is what Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 5. So how is life possible? It's all because of Jesus, his death and resurrection. Why does God give this life? Well, we certainly don't deserve it. What we deserved was death. We deserved wrath for our trespasses. That's what we deserved. Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 9, it's not the result of our works. So none of us can boast that we deserve this life he gives us. Paul says again and again, the gospel announces that we're saved by grace, God's undeserved kindness to us. You don't deserve it, but he's done it anyway. You can see it there, verse 5 and in verse 8. It's by grace that we've been saved. God gives us this life through faith in Christ as an act of grace towards us. Why would God be so gracious to us? Why would God be like that? Because he's the one full of love. Back to chapter 2, verse 4 there. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us. The gospel is the announcement that God is love and that he's loved us by securing our salvation in Christ. It's a pretty good story, don't you see? It's a pretty good set of truths. This is the awful reality. This is what he's done. This is how it's possible. This is why he did it. Because he's full of love for you. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That'd be pretty good. But you know what? But wait. There's more. Isn't that good enough? No. It doesn't stop there. The gospel announces words of comfort and hope as well, when God promises us an eternal future. Have a look in chapter 2, verse 7. Why has God raised us up with Christ? He's done it so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The one true living God wants you there in the new creation. And when we are there in the new creation with the Lord Jesus, we will finally realize just how immeasurably rich he has been, his grace to us in Christ Jesus. We have some idea now that that'll be great when we finally get there. But I'll tell you, when we're actually there, in resurrected bodies, in glory, sharing Jesus' glory, seeing Jesus face to face, then we'll go, now I get just how gracious God has been to me. God wants to show you that. He wants you to have that experience. So he sent Christ so that you might be saved 
and have Lot is that hope. So what I hope you can see is that out of, out of this, out of this gospel, this good news announcement from God, this is God's word of life and power. It's his word of grace and truth, of warning and judgment, of comfort and hope. And through this gospel announcement that's all about Jesus, God shows himself to be the one full of authority, righteousness and love. And so just, I guess, a quiet word to you. If, if you've been here with us this week and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this gospel about Jesus and the loving salvation that he offers you in Jesus, this is God's word to you. This is God's speech to you. This is what he's saying to you. Have you heard his offer of life, real life, in Jesus this week? Don't expect to suddenly one day hear a voice from the sky. Believe in Jesus. No, God's voice is here. It's here in the gospel that the scriptures proclaim this message that God loves you and wants to bring you from death to life if only you will put your trust in Jesus and choose to live for him. And if you've been thinking a lot about that this week, but you're still unsure, keep reading the Bible. Keep reading God's words about who Jesus is in the plans and purpose of God. Keep reading it. Do uncover. Keep reading. But if you've been thinking a lot about it and you have decided that it is true, that Jesus is who he says he is and that he died and rose again for you, why not Commit yourself to him tonight. Why not move from death to life tonight? Embrace his word of life and power. Embrace his word of comfort and hope and decide to follow Jesus like that song that we sang. It's very simple to do. You tell God you're sorry for not listening to him. You thank him for sending Jesus and you ask him to help you follow Jesus. Sorry, thank you, please. You pray that prayer and mean it. God promises to wipe away all your sin and to give you life as one of his children. And your future will be certain. You will be there with Jesus in the renewed creation because God promised it. And his word is true. Sorry. Thank you. Please. I encourage you to pray it on your own or pray it with a friend or find an EU staff worker. Pray it with them. And if you do pray it, make sure you tell somebody so that we, like we did earlier, we can rejoice with you and encourage you as you start your new life with us following Jesus. Okay, let's move to the second part of tonight's talk. We've talked about the gospel message of the scriptures. We want to think now about how that gospel word interacts with God's world. I'm over the page onto page 38. A few quick things to point out on this page. They're not quick, I'm not doing them quickly because they're not important. We just don't have much time to talk about them. But I want to mention them because I think they actually are really important about how God's word in the gospel interacts with God's world. So I'm going to throw some of them out there and you might like to think and talk about them a bit more later on. First of all, the word of the gospel makes sense of God's world. Now, most people, and including, I think, sadly, most Christians, seem to think that the Christian message about Jesus is like some sort of foreign object in our world. It's something that God has sent into his world, this message about Jesus, but it just doesn't really belong here. It doesn't really seem to fit. Well, actually what the Bible tells you is completely different to that. 
it says that the gospel is calling the world back to who and what it was created to be. The gospel that Jesus is Lord is actually at the heart of the universe and it's the key to understanding all of reality. So you can start to appreciate this when you start to think and remember. You go, there are deep connections between God's word and his world. Just think about it. The world was created by God's word, wasn't it? We know it's sustained by God's word. We know it will be judged by God's word. We know it will be renewed by that same word. And that word that is essential to every part of the world's life took on human flesh as the man Jesus, and the gospel we proclaim is all about him. It announces that Jesus is Lord of all, that he is presently ruling this creation. So you see, the gospel, the word, and the world, they're not unrelated. In fact, the gospel is the key to understanding the true nature of reality. Without the gospel, our understanding of the world lacks its proper center. And we don't truly know how things fit together. Now, I know you're politely just sitting there, but what I just said would, the professors and tutors of our university would go, oh, that's so dumb, that's so stupid, why are you listening to this guy? So I'll say it again. Without the gospel, our understanding of the world lacks its proper center. And we don't truly know how things fit together. What this means is that as a Christian, you need to have an integrated, word-focused worldview. Too many university Christians live with a split worldview. They have their Christian beliefs, which seem to operate when they are at church or in the EU, even maybe on their own, just privately. But when it comes to thinking about their area of study at uni, or their professional area of work, or issues, say, about the government, or public policy, or for whom they should vote, They seem to operate with some other sort of framework which is not necessarily very biblically informed. So you spend your day studying finance, nursing, engineering, but it's completely divorced from your Christian commitment. That's not just a shame. It actually doesn't make sense that you do that. Because if Jesus is ruling over all this world, if he as the word is the one who sustains every moment of this world's existence, then we need to have an integrated, word-focused worldview. You need to be able to think about your university subjects from a deeply Christian framework. Whether that be English literature, finance, engineering, history, philosophy, fine arts, biology, whatever. You need to be able to think about the sort of work that you do Christianly. Not just about how you work. I should be, I should not steal from my boss. I should be respectful of those in authority. Not just like that. I'm saying, no, you need to think Christianly about the very work that you're doing. The values that are inherent in your industry the philosophy and ethics involved in the work that you're being asked to do. You need to be able to think about being a citizen in our society, a a democratic society where you have a voice. You need to be able to think about what it means to be a good steward of your vote because you're a Christian and you want to be a good steward of everything that God's given you. As followers of Jesus, we need to have an integrated Word-focused worldview. Now, that's a bit of a rant about the gospel and making sense of the world. Uh, My brief comment uh, is, uh, my other brief comment is about how this word of the gospel is received in God's world. So, point two there, the world of the gospel. 
Now, you probably don't need reminding, but the fact that God's gospel is critical to rightly understanding the world does not mean that God's gospel about Jesus is always accepted or always held on to. We don't have time to look in depth at Jesus' parable of the soils. If you've been a ground Christian thing for a while, you probably know the parable. But if you want to get an understanding of how Jesus' gospel is sometimes received, the parable of the soils is really helpful. What Jesus teaches in that parable is that it's not as simple, actually, as just hearing the word, putting your trust in Jesus, and then everything is fine. What Jesus makes clear is that sometimes the word doesn't get heard at all. It's the words are said, but the message does not get in. Well, the answer when that happens, when you share the gospel with a friend of yours, but it just doesn't seem to to take, to get in, well, the answer to that is more prayer and more patience. Sometimes the word from these parables is heard by someone and they receive it joyfully, this is great news, and they commit themselves to Jesus. That's the seed on the rock. But then a time of testing comes. Maybe they have to stand up for their faith. Maybe they're made fun of because they're now a Christian, and they give up. Sometimes the word is heard by someone. They commit themselves to following Jesus, but as life goes on, they get choked by the worries of life, or they get tempted by money or by the pleasures of this world. And so their faith in Jesus slowly but surely gets choked out. That's the seed among thorns. But what Jesus wants us to be is the good soil. The ones who hear the word, keep it, and persevere in it. Then, Jesus says, you'll bear fruit as a Christian. That's how God wants us to respond to his word. Okay, we're going to pause there. Uh, We've decided to do something a bit different tonight. I'm going to pause my talk here. We're going to stand in a moment and sing God's praises together. And then before I come back for the final little bit of the talk, which is about the gospel going out into all the world, we're going to have an interview to, to hear about from some of our LRLR workers about their experience of seeing the gospel go out into his world. That's the plan. Okay, so let's stand and sing. I find it just astounding when I hear the different stories from our brothers and sisters working around the world about just what's happening with the gospel of Jesus as it goes into all the world. Lots of people might say, ah, you've taken the gospel of Jesus, that westernized sort of imperialistic attitude. You're just trying to impose that gospel into every culture. It's so imperial of you. Well, actually, yes, it is. Don't blame me or the Christian faith. It goes back to Jesus himself. According to Jesus, the gospel message about him is the only gospel for every nation, every culture. Have a look at what Jesus says there, page 31, Matthew 28. We're going to fly through to the end now. What does Jesus say to his apostles after he's been raised from the dead? And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is imperial. As we saw last night, the gospel is hierarchical. It says, Jesus has been made Lord. Jesus is saying here, I have been made Lord. I have universal authority. What are we meant to do as a result? He goes on, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's only one gospel, one word from the living true God, and it's for every nation and culture. And that gospel for every culture is, do whatever you like. Whatever you think about God is great. That's not the message to every culture. Do whatever you like. No, God's message to every culture is, 
I have made Jesus Lord and Christ. It's about who Jesus is in the plans and purposes of God and how we can have life only in his name. So Jesus' command is, take this message to every nation because it is the only way that they can have life in my name. And what God promises is that at the end, at the very end, when Jesus returns, what God promises is at the very end, when we're all there and Jesus returns and we look around and we say, so who's here? Who have we got? Will it just be the Westerners? Will it just be the Whiteys? No. No. There will be disciples of Jesus from every culture around the globe. It will be like the greatest multicultural festival that you can imagine. Look how John describes it in the vision Jesus gives him in Revelation 7. Warning, apocalyptic literature, read responsibly. After this, says John, I looked. In this vision Jesus gives him, I looked. And there was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus. Robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Many nations, many languages, many cultures, one gospel, one Lord, one God, one salvation. That is the reality to which God is taking the planet. That is the destiny of humankind. Well, how's it, how's it going to happen? How are we going to get there? What did Jesus say? Matthew 28, go and make disciples of every nation. It involves going and speaking. The gospel is a message, right? It's about Jesus. It has to get out somehow, and it needs people to take it and speak it. Paul makes the same point in Romans 10. I'm going to jump into verse 13, which is the last sentence in the, sec- in the first paragraph. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be sh- shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in one of whom they've never heard? Or how are they to hear without someone to proclaim to them? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all have obeyed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the word of Christ. So the way we're saved is by believing this message about Jesus, who he is and the plans and purposes of God, and entrusting ourselves to him. But you've got to hear that message, haven't you, to believe it. And that means someone, someone has to get that message to you. Okay, so this is what I want you to do. I was tossing up in my mind, are you having a brain explosion? Is this a good thing to do? I'm going to do it anyway, but hey, you'll get to tell the story later on. I want you to take off one of your shoes and the sock. Just do it. Just do it. I'm doing it too. Come on. Do it. Right. Come on. Just do it. All right. If you don't do it, like, if you don't do it, that's okay. I'm not going to shame you, right, if you don't do it. But I'm just saying, you'll remember it if you do it. Like, it's kinesthetic. It's like it's, that was for the education people. Okay. Now, what I want you to do is this. I want you to look at your foot. You don't have to talk about it. Just, just look at your foot. 
It's all right. Look at your foot. Are you trying to look at my foot? Okay, all right, all right, all right. Yes, I'm, I'm thinking this was a brain explosion. Um, I have, I have a beautiful foot. My question is, my question is, do you have beautiful feet? Now, I'll be honest, I'll be honest, I'm glad I'm up here and not down there because my foot ain't that beautiful sort of to look at. <laughs> I want to cover it up pretty quickly, actually, from that camera. Um, yeah, it's okay, now, my question is, what Paul said there, right, was... How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, the gospel? He's not saying, by the way, it just happens under God's hand. Everyone who speaks the gospel happens to have a beautiful foot. Like, it's just, how weird is that? Like, that's not what he's, he's just saying. How beautiful are those who go and speak the message? Do you have beautiful feet? Do you have beautiful feet? There are so many people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus. That's just as true at Sydney Uni as it is at ANU or Melbourne Uni or Adelaide Uni. Thank you, yes. Or any other uni that I've missed. <laughs> Thank you. There are people who need to hear the gospel, you know it, in all those places, right? In every place, we need people who will be disciple makers for Jesus. We need people to speak the gospel to their friends where they are, so that their friends will have an opportunity, so your friends will have an opportunity to hear who Jesus is, so they can believe and have life, real life, in his name. Your friends need that. You know that. We need to have beautiful feet. Feet that will go and speak the gospel of life to our friends who are dead, spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. And only Jesus can give them that life. But I actually want to raise our sights a bit higher even than that. I want us here particularly at Sydney Uni, in the EU, I want us in the EU, and particularly I want you, who are here at ANCON tonight, I want you to take hold of a particular challenge. I'm inviting you to do so. Take hold of a particular challenge, the challenge to love the less reached and the less resourced with the gospel they need. I do not want you, friends, to be a Christian who lives with their head in the sand, not knowing the reality of the situation about gospel work around the world. Because the reality is that when it comes to Christian resources and the state of the spread of the gospel around the world, it is not all just the same as here. I know that we often sort of think everywhere is the same as here. It is just not the case. It's not like that at all. That's why our LRLR workers, our friends, have been here all week telling us that. That's why we asked them to come, actually, because that is, their stories are the reality. That is what the big world is actually like. The world is far less reached and far less resourced than you and I usually experience it at Sydney Uni in the EU, one of the 
one of the five largest Christian evangelical groups in the world. You are right, you are right up the top. And for us to think, oh, everywhere's like this, isn't it? That's just dumb. It's just ignorant. It's just not the truth. I don't want you to be that person. I want to pull your head out of the sand. Have a look around. This is reality. The stories that you're hearing, that's what the rest of the world is like. Imagine for a moment a massive, a massive hillside here. Huge hillside, right? And most of the hillside, it's all just got patchy little bits of vegetation. Most, like some parts of, of the hillside are just desolate. Nothing, almost, almost nothing there. Other parts, small little plants just sort of hanging on, looking fragile. Maybe they've got good roots, but they're, they're small, tiny. Some other places, a small shrub seems to be going okay. But overall, the hillside, pretty bare. But then, over in this corner, here just in the corner of the hillside, there is this amazing, am- amazing little garden full of like tall established trees and bushes and flowers there's even an irrigation system installed and there's there's a greenhouse that says sydney university on it like this that's us right more rich in gospel resources and more rich than most of us could possibly imagine Of course, there's still work to do in our part of the garden. There's always more work to do. I just want to point out a particular challenge that in love, we could do something about under God. We we could seek to bless the rest of the hillside with the gospel of Jesus out of our God-given abundance and riches. Not because... You or I are more awesome than everyone else. Let us share our awesomeness with the world. That's what the university thinks about itself. But that's not how we think about ourselves. We do it out of love. We do it because we know that God in His wisdom and grace, and its grace has blessed us with, with more. He did that for a reason, right? He did that so that you could steward those gospel riches that he's entrusted to you. You could steward them for him, not keep them for him, steward them, use them for him, for his purposes on the hillside. He doesn't force us to. We don't have to leave the garden. We're free in Christ. But he gives us the opportunity, the resources to do something. Maybe it means for you doing something different on the campus. Maybe it means helping take the gospel to a less reached group on our campus, like international students through EU Focus, or talking, with, talking about Jesus with Muslims, right, through Kuznin. Maybe it means signing up to do an EU LRLR summer mission. Go and help in a less reached, less resourced church, just, even just for the short time at the mission. Maybe it might mean doing something different outside of campus. If you're not doing anything on Sunday mornings, why don't you find another Bible teaching church that needs people to teach their kids about Jesus in their morning program? You're not doing anything. You're sleeping in, playing your whatever thing, or going to the beach. Like, why don't you go and just serve in a less resourced church? If you're only on campus two or three days a week, instead of spending all your other days building up your bank balance by working, why don't you find a school that doesn't have enough SRE teachers and offer to do the training so that you could teach the gospel to kids in scripture classes there? Just do something to serve the less reached and the less resourced. You don't have to change your life to do it. Not much. So I think every Christian here could do something in the next 12 months to help serve the less reached and the less resourced in sort of where you're at. 
So that's my first challenge to you tonight, is will you commit to doing something, just something, in the next 12 months to serve the less reached and the less resourced with the gospel? It might be on campus, might be off campus, just out of love. Will you do something? Not because you have to, because you can. Uh, my second challenge has a bigger horizon. I want to encourage you to make some big decisions to serve amongst the less reached and the less resourced in the next five years. See, I reckon, I've said five, just so I reckon in the next five years, pretty much everyone here will have to make some big decisions. Because hopefully under God, in the next five years, you might actually graduate. Now, the questions that students usually ask themselves when they graduate, these are the, this is the thought process that goes on when, when someone graduates. They go, first question, where do I want to work? Am I looking for a job in the CBD? Am I looking for a job I'm, I'm in Sydney? And so I, I want to I work in North Sydney, CBD. I first of all sort of think, where, do I, where am I prepared to work? That's the first question, usually. Second question is, right, I've sorted out where I'll be working. Right, where can I live? I want to live somewhere that will be convenient for work. And then the third question is, finally, once you've sorted out the other two, right, now, where can I go to church? Somewhere near where I live. That's just just the usual thought pattern, right? I want to encourage you to completely reverse that order. I'd like you to think, first question, when you're getting ready to graduate. Where amongst the less reached and the less resourced would I like to serve? I mean, going there with your profession, whatever your training is, but where would you like to serve the less reached and less resourced? Not the whole world to choose from. Where would you like to do it? Second question, once you've worked that out, right, if that's where I want to serve, where should I choose to live? And then third, once you've got that sorted, okay, Now, where can I find work that's in a reasonable radius from where I want to live? That's radical. That is gospel-centered decision-making for Jesus' kingdom and glory. That's an integrated, word-focused worldview. So my specific challenge to you then is this. Will you commit for the next five years to prayerfully consider going to serve the less reached or the less resourced in cross-cultural Sydney in the rest of Australia or overseas? Now, let me be clear. This is not about becoming a minister or church worker. This is not necessarily about you giving up your day job. I, I mean, I do really hope and pray that for some of you, that is what you decide to do under God. But this is actually also about just moving to Albury, say, as a pharmacist, so you can be a mature Christian serving there in a less resourced situation. Maybe it does mean moving to Leipzig, as we heard Klaus talk about the other night, and working there in your profession in order to be a keen, mature member of God's less resourced people in that place. Maybe it means moving to Lakemba or Campsie or other parts of Sydney and joining a local church, helping them reach those living around you who are much less reached than any parts of Sydney. I mean, Campsie is only a few minutes from the CBD by train. You could actually have a job in town and live in Campsie, but it would be so much nicer to live in North Sydney. See, this is my specific larger challenge. Will you commit for the next five years to prayerfully consider where you might go to serve? amongst the less reached and the less resourced. And just to give it some shape, I'm particularly just singling out these three possibilities, serving cross-culturally in Sydney, serving elsewhere in Australia, that is, you know, outside of Sydney, and serving overseas, including Tasmania. So that's my question. Are you willing to commit 
for the next five years to prayerfully considering how you might serve in those places. Now, even if you're not willing to step up to the second challenge, I hope we're all willing to step up, I hope, to the first challenge, to do something in the next 12 months. Certainly, we can, though, all pray for the gospel to spread into those areas, right? Even if we're not willing to go ourselves, we can at least pray for those things. So to end this session, we're going to do something a little bit different. What we're going to do uh, in a moment is uh, two of our friends are going to come up and lead us in prayer for what we've heard from God's Word tonight. And then you are going to have a chance to pray for one of these areas. You can pray for cross-cultural work in Sydney, or you could pray for the gospel go out the rest of Australia, or you could pray for the gospel to go overseas. Now, if you'd like to pray, we're actually going to, after our friends have prayed, we're going to get up and we're going to move to one of three locations, depending on who you want to pray for. So... If you would like to pray for the spread of the gospel across cultures in Sydney, I want you to go over that way, right? Towards where the ping pong tables are, over there towards the windows, right? If you want to pray for the spread of the gospel across the rest of Australia, I want you to come over to sort of the front, the right-hand front of the stage. If you want to pray for the spread of the gospel overseas, then go (laughs) to the dining room. Right? And you can pray over there. Now, when you get there, this is what we're going to do, just so we can pray. But, but you need to listen. When we get there, you're going to break up into groups of four. And, and don't wait for anyone to tell you what to do. Just grab three other people and start praying for the spread of the gospel to go out into that part of God's world. But there will also be, in those places, sign-up sheets if you're willing to make the second commitment. If you're willing to prayerfully consider going to those places in the next five years. I'd love you to write your name down if you're willing to make that commitment on the sign-up sheet in that spot. That way we can keep encouraging each other over the next five years to keep our commitment to pray and consider how we might go. Small point, because I know some of you, you know, think about the details. Yes, you should go to the place. If you want to sign up, go to that place to pray. Don't go to the other place when you want to sign up over there. Just a little thing. I know someone's going to ask me about it. Also, if you say, oh, I, I do want to make that second commitment. I want to go somewhere in the next five years. I just don't know where. I can't choose. So hard. Just pick one. Like, it doesn't. Your plans can change anyway, and we're just getting together to pray. Write your name down, and if you change mind later on, that's okay. I mean, we change our mind for all sorts of good reasons, right? So we're all going to go somewhere to pray. And if you're stepping up to make that second commitment, then make sure you write your name down when you get there. Okay, let's pray.